Hello and welcome to Detour. You should be standing across the street from 722 Toulouse Street in the historic French Quarter. The French Quarter is made up of the 78 square blocks that were the original city of New Orleans. In the mid-1700s, the quarter began as an affluent neighborhood for the French and Spanish colonies. Then, in the late 1800s, this became a working-class immigrant area. Today, many know it as a tourist-oriented hub for drinking and partying. But in the 1920s, the French Quarter was home to many artists and writers who transformed these blocks into a sort of artist colony. These great creative minds included William Faulkner, Sherwood Anderson, and New Orleans' most cherished adopted son, playwright Tennessee Williams. In 1946, Tennessee called the quarter one of the last frontiers of Bohemia. Take a look across the street at the two-story peach-colored building with green shutters. That was Tennessee's first home here when he arrived in 1938. There's even a plaque in his honor. He went on to live and work in New Orleans during several different periods from the 1930s to the 1980s. And there's no doubt that some of Tennessee's most acclaimed work would not have been written, at least not in the same way, if it weren't for his time here in the French Quarter. You see, Tennessee, along with other writers, contributed to the fabric of the quarter, but he was also changed by his time here. And that's the story I'm going to tell you today, the story of Tennessee Williams and this last frontier of Bohemia. My name is Kenneth Holditch. I'm a professor emeritus of writing and literature at the University of New Orleans and I've written or co-authored five books on Tennessee Williams. I've always thought of Tennessee's journey to New Orleans as similar to my own because we were both born and reared in Mississippi about 50 miles and several decades apart. And we both made our way here in search of some place to express ourselves more genuinely. I first met Tennessee in 1978, and we became friends. I even have seven paintings by Tennessee hanging in my house. That's right, paintings. Tennessee was what we call a weekend painter. He painted for relaxation. But let's start at the beginning of his time here. Take a look at the roof of that peach building. See the small white dormer window? It's usually shuttered. That was Tennessee's window. The day after Christmas in 1938, Tennessee, who was 28, decided to move to New Orleans from St. Louis, where he had been working with his father at a shoe factory and was desperate to find an escape. Shortly after he arrived in the quarter, he moved into that third-floor room of Mrs. Anderson's boarding house here at 722 Toulouse Street. And in his first few days in this boarding house, he wrote, Here is surely the place that I was made for, if any place in this funny old world. Check for cars, 
and cross the street to see the plaque on the house commemorating Tennessee's time here. Mrs. Anderson's boarding house helped shape Tennessee's early writing. This is where he first used the pen name Tennessee instead of his given name Tom. He wound up with a pen name because he had submitted a handful of plays to a competition for playwrights under 25. To justify lying about his age, Tennessee rationalized that the three years after college, when he had worked in the shoe factory, had been stolen from him. So as a writer, he was really only 25. But just in case, he took the pen name of his father's home state, which friends in college had coined as his nickname due to his southern accent. Let's get going. Facing Mrs. Anderson's boarding house, turn left and start walking down Toulouse Street to the corner. Tennessee was born in 1911 as Thomas Lanier Williams in Columbus, Mississippi. His father was an alcoholic traveling shoe salesman. After a childhood bout of diphtheria, Tennessee's mother doted on him and his father worried that she was turning their son into, as he put it, a sissy. Feeling like a disappointment, Tennessee turned inward and started writing at 12. He sold his first story at 16 and had found his calling. Throughout his career, his family's dysfunction provided material for his work. At the corner turned left, and crossed Toulouse Street toward the salmon-colored building. Continue walking down Royal Street toward the Court of Two Sisters. That's the restaurant where Tennessee got his first job in New Orleans to pay the bills as a struggling writer. After graduating from the University of Iowa in 1938, Tennessee tried to find work in Chicago with the WPA's Writers Project that had been started during the Depression. But when he wasn't hired there, he headed to R. New Orleans, where he heard there was work. Keep walking. The writer's project here was creating a state guide for Louisiana and a city guide for New Orleans. But the work was winding down, so Tennessee took a job at the Court of Two Sisters. Tennessee did, however, get to meet the head of the writer's project, Lyle Saxon, who was promoting the French Quarter as a writer's haven. Even though Saxon didn't hire Tennessee to write the guides, they became good friends, and Saxon encouraged the young Tennessee to continue to write here. That's when Tennessee settled into the boarding house on Toulouse Street. Across the street on the corner, you'll see a sign for Rousey's Market, a local grocery. Cross St. Peter's Street toward it and continue walking. Continue walking down Royal Street with Rouse's Market on your left. Tennessee's time at the boarding house gave him almost as much material as his family. In one of his later plays, Vieux Carré, a pivotal scene recalls a real-life incident at the boarding house. Mrs. Anderson got annoyed at a tenant's loud party on the first floor, so she poured boiling water through the floor cracks onto the people below. Stop here on the corner and look across the street to your right. 
That's the back of the St. Louis Cathedral. Notice the statue of Christ inside the courtyard. Tennessee loved this church and that statue. He believed Jesus had his arms outstretched to welcome and comfort everyone in the suffering world, and that gave him peace. Tennessee maintained a strong sense of religion up until he died. His grandfather was an Anglican minister, and Tennessee was reared in the church. Tennessee drew a lot of the dramatic tension in his work from the contrast between his puritanical religious upbringing and the looser, more bohemian lifestyle he embraced here in New Orleans. And his work is full of Christian symbols. But he never subscribed to the idea that life as we know it resumed after death. Although Tennessee did think that the apartment he lived in near this cathedral was haunted by a friendly ghost. Let's go check it out. With the cathedral to your right, cross Orleans Street in front of you and turn left. You should have made a left at Orleans Street. Keep walking. As you walk, look to your left across the street. See the large gray building, number 710. Tennessee lived here briefly in 1946 while waiting for a room to open on St. Peter Street. Stop here and take a look across the street at number 710. Of all the apartments Tennessee had in New Orleans, this was the one he loved most because of his view. Look up to the second-story balconies and imagine Tennessee standing there, looking back to your left at the statue of Jesus in the garden of St. Louis Cathedral. Tennessee lived here with Pancho Rodriguez, who was his lover for several years. Later, Tennessee acknowledged that Pancho was an inspiration for the character of Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire. The role was made famous by Marlon Brando, first on stage, and then in Eli Kazan's film adaptation. Okay, let's get going. Facing the building, turn left and walk back down Orleans toward the cathedral. Tennessee loved this cathedral so much that in A Streetcar Named Desire, Blanche Dubois declares that its bells are the only clean things in the quarter. At the corner, watch for cars and then cross Royal Street toward the cathedral. Blanche's statement encapsulates Tennessee's feelings about this place. Facing the cathedral, turn right and continue walking down Royal Street. After Tennessee's death, a memorial service was held at this cathedral. Writers, poets, actors, and locals came to pay their respects to the man who made this city famous in his work and I was honored to be asked to deliver a eulogy. Turn left at the corner and continue walking on St. Peter Street. After traveling the country together, Tennessee and Pancho returned to New Orleans in 1946, and Tennessee, always a diligent writer, finished what would become his most enduring and iconic work. Stop here 
look directly across the street at 622 St. Peter Street, a red brick building with a forest green base. See the cast iron balconies? Tennessee and Pancho lived here from 1946 to 1947, and this is where Tennessee completed the majority of a drama he had been working on for years. The play had many different titles, including Blanche's Chair in the Moon, but the constant sound of nearby streetcars inspired him as he wrote, and he wove it into the play, eventually using it as the title, A Streetcar Named Desire. The Desire Streetcar line ran just to your right on Royal Street. And in the play, Blanche Dubois is supposed to take that streetcar and transfer to another line, cemeteries, and ride to Elysian Fields. A Streetcar Named Desire became Tennessee's most famous play, winning him a Pulitzer Prize for drama in 1948. Ironically, the following year, the city shut down the Desire Streetcar line. Facing the apartment, look to the left, down St. Peter Street. You should be able to see Le Petit Théâtre de Vieux Carré. It's the hub for the Tennessee Williams Festival that I helped to start in 1986. Each year, the festival produces five days of events and performances. Many of Tennessee's works have been performed here, from the glass menagerie to a one-man show titled The Man in the Overstuffed Chair. Okay, let's start walking, and I'll tell you more about it. Continue down St. Peter Street toward Le Petit Théâtre. You'll see Jackson Square up ahead. The Man in the Overstuffed Chair was adapted from an essay Tennessee wrote about his contentious relationship with his father, Cornelius Williams. Cornelius was a traveling salesman and rarely at home. When Tennessee failed an Army officer training class, Cornelius pulled his son out of college and made Tennessee work with him in St. Louis. Eventually, Tennessee did graduate and moved to New Orleans, but his father continued to be overbearing, and his parents wound up separating. See the square just ahead? Make a right at the corner and continue walking down Charter Street on the right side of the street. While Tennessee was a disciplined writer, he had his vices in New Orleans. Indulging in food and drink were two of the biggest. Even though he traveled the world, Tennessee loved New Orleans cuisine the most, especially Gulf seafood, and he loved a good cocktail. He preferred to take his meals out and he always had a favorite place near each of his apartments. As you walk, look across the street to your left. See the tan building with the sign that says Doris Metropolitan? Continue walking. It used to be the Alpine, and it served Creole and Cajun food, including Tennessee's favorite seafood. In addition to eating and drinking there, Tennessee used the Alpine as a setting for a scene in his play The Mutilated, which was about low-income tenants of a boarding house similar to Mrs. Anderson's on Toulouse Street. 
Continue walking. Okay, we're approaching another restaurant on your right. It's a salmon-colored building called the Charter's House. Stop outside the Charter's House. In a moment, we'll go inside and order one of Tennessee's favorite drinks, a Brandy Alexander. It's a cream-based cocktail, but you can always order something a little lighter. If you don't want to go inside, just stand here for a moment while I tell you about it. Okay, pause me to go inside, and after you have your drink, press play again. While he was riding a streetcar named Desire back on St. Peter Street, Tennessee had a routine. He wrote from early morning until the early afternoon, and then he retired to Victor's, which used to be here where the Charter's house is now. He often drank Brandy Alexander's while eating a sandwich and listening to his favorite song on the jukebox. The song was If I Didn't Care by the Ink Spots. After his lunch, Tennessee would walk to the New Orleans Athletic Club for a swim or sit in nearby Jackson Square to look at the cathedral. If you need more time to finish your drink, pause me, and when you're outside, press play. I'll meet you there. I hope you enjoyed your drink. Now, standing on the corner of Toulouse and Charters with the Charters house at your back, turn right and start walking down Toulouse Street. Keep the Charters house on your right. A lot of Tennessee's writing was based on his personal experiences, and one of his more difficult experiences involved his older sister Rose, who developed a nervous condition while at boarding school. Later, Rose was diagnosed as schizophrenic and eventually lobotomized. Tennessee was appalled by the lobotomy and its effects on Rose, with whom he had been very close in childhood. He spent the rest of his life obsessed with it. It's well known that the character of Laura in The Glass Menagerie was based on Rose. But the final scene of Streetcar also echoes Tennessee's horror at his sister's fate. In that scene, an increasingly unstable Blanche is carried off to a mental institution where she must become reliant on the kindness of strangers. Tennessee believed that his sister's growing instability had been caused by the strain between her strict Victorian upbringing enforced by his mother and Rose's bottled-up sexual desires, not unlike the character of Blanche, who evokes the old genteel South and doesn't fit into the rougher urban New Orleans. Up ahead, let's cross the street and continue walking in the same direction. Keep walking up Toulouse Street. If this block seems familiar, it's because we started our walk here. But Tennessee lived on this block more than once, which is why we're back. After the success of Streetcar, Tennessee was too busy working in New York and elsewhere to maintain a proper residence in New Orleans. He mostly stayed in hotels such as the Monteleon and also the Maison de Ville, which is up ahead on the right. The hotel building was constructed after the disastrous Great New Orleans Fire of 1788, which destroyed much of 18th century New Orleans. The property also has a courtyard, 
and separate slave quarters, which were built sometime in the 1750s. Stop here in front of the Maison de Ville. Tennessee only stayed here if he was guaranteed his favorite room, number nine. The room opened onto the courtyard, where the sound of the hotel's fountain calmed his nerves. Tennessee wrote here quite a bit in his later years, and number nine is now named the Tennessee Williams Suite in his honor. Okay, facing the Maison de Ville, turn left and continue walking up to Loose Street in the same direction we were heading. Tennessee spoke of his early years in New Orleans before he wrote The Glass Menagerie as happy. This is after he came out in the gay world. At the corner, turn right onto Bourbon Street. Do your best to navigate the crowds as you continue walking. Tennessee didn't think of it as coming out. He said, I thought of it as a new world, a world in which I seemed to fit the first time and where life was full of adventure that satisfied the libido. I felt comfortable at last. The tension between the old genteel South and this new libido impacted both Tennessee's life and work. He celebrated the South, but also saw elements of it as outdated. Certainly being gay in the South was, for the most part, not accepted, although life was a bit easier in the Bohemian French Quarter. Remember the quarter started out as a bourgeois neighborhood under French and Spanish rule, but by the 1800s it had become a mostly immigrant neighborhood. In the 1920s, writers and artists moved in because the real estate was affordable and because the quarter was so romantic. And many of these Bohemians were more open with their sexuality. And by the time Tennessee moved here in 1938, the quarter had an established gay culture, including bars to congregate in. As you approach the corner, look diagonally across the street See the Cat's Meow Bar? It's the gray building with the green shutters. Cross both streets when it's safe, and I'll meet you in front of the bar. Stop here outside the Cat's Meow. From 1939 until 1964, this was Dixie's Bar of Music, and it was the quarter's most popular gay bar. Miss Dixie Fosnacht opened the original location in the Central Business District shortly after Tennessee moved to New Orleans. It moved to this location in 1949. Tennessee frequently drank here right up until it closed, and Miss Dixie became a personal friend. Miss Dixie passed away in 2011 at the age of 101, but she remains a legend here in the quarter because she always supported her gay patrons, even in hostile times. Okay, facing Miss Dixie's, turn to the right and continue walking down Bourbon Street in the same direction. Not everyone in the city was happy about gay life taking hold of the quarter. In 1955, the police superintendent said the city's number one vice problem was homosexuals. 
and the police harassed gay people in what they called cleanup campaigns. Cross Orleans Street up ahead and continue walking down Bourbon. During these campaigns, police raided gay bars, arrested gay men for crimes against nature or committing a lewd act. The men were often beaten until they named others who had violated the city's now archaic decency laws, and their pictures were published in the Times-Picayune. This public outing left them open to reprisals from homophobic acquaintances, family, and employers. Up ahead, cross St. Anne Street and continue walking along Bourbon. By this time, Tennessee had broken up with Pancho and was seeing Frank Merlo, who became his longtime partner for 15 years. Continue walking down Bourbon Street, keeping the brick building on your left. Despite the homophobia in the 1940s, the French Quarter was still one of the most accepting neighborhoods in the South and the United States because of the artists and bohemians. We're coming up to a bar up ahead that Tennessee frequented. Cafe Lafitte in exile has operated continuously since 1933. It claims to be the oldest continuously operating gay bar in the United States. It was also one of Tennessee's favorites. Cafe Lafitte was originally located at the other end of the block. But that building was sold in 1953, and the new owner didn't want a gay bar. So the owners of Lafitte's moved the bar here and renamed it Cafe Lafitte in Exile. Supposedly, the night this spot opened, several regulars had a drink at the old location, stood up in unison, and carried their bar stools over here. Look at the corner coming up on the other side of the street. See the two-story yellow building with green shutters? That's Cafe Lafitte in exile. Cross over to the bar and I'll meet you there. Stop at the corner in front of the bar. In a moment, we'll go inside and order a drink. As you walk into the bar through the corner entrance, Take a look at the black and white photograph on the brick column in front of you. It depicts a man with a drink. If you don't want to go in, just stand here for a moment while I tell you about this place. Okay, pause me to go inside, and after you've ordered a drink, press play. Did you see the black and white photo of the man with the drink hanging on the brick column? That's Tennessee. Tennessee's friend Truman Capote also frequented Café Lafitte in exile. In 1956, Tennessee was actually blacklisted by Roman Catholic Cardinal Spellman for writing Baby Doll, a movie that the Cardinal considered revolting, deplorable, morally repellent, offensive to Christian standards of decency. Later, Spellman admitted that he had never seen the film. Okay, if you need more time to finish your drink, you can pause me, and when you're outside, press play. I'll meet you there. Okay, standing on the corner with the door to Café Lafitte at your back, turn right and start walking down Dumaine. Keep the bar on your right. 
1949, he and Frank Merlo moved to Florida. But Tennessee returned to New Orleans whenever he could, and he purchased a house here in 1962. After Frank passed away from lung cancer in 1963, he became depressed and a doctor prescribed him an injection which turned out to be a cocktail of methamphetamine and other drugs. This so-called medicine allowed him to continue to write at a busy time in his career, but he violated the doctor's instructions not to drink, and the combination of the shots and the liquor made him sicker and sicker until he suffered a sort of breakdown in 1969. A friend called his brother Dakin, who had Tennessee committed to a mental ward in a hospital in St. Louis, a city he openly despised. Continue walking in the same direction. Cross Dauphine Street in front of you and continue walking in the same direction. Keep walking on Dumaine. You should be passing a red brick building on your right. Tennessee spent three and a half months at the hospital, going cold turkey off the injections and other pills. Once he recovered, he was eager to get back to his writing. Over the next few years, Tennessee completed several new plays that were produced, including Vieux Carre, the play that was inspired by his time at Mrs. Anderson's boarding house. Fiacore opened on Broadway on May 11, 1977, but it closed just four days later after only five performances. Critics were not kind, and Tennessee took it hard, given that the play was semi-autobiographical. He responded by throwing himself into his work, writing two more plays, Tiger Tail and A Lovely Sunday for Krevker. You're coming up to the corner of Burgundy Street. Let's stop there for a moment. Stop here at the corner and look to your left. See the grocery and deli across the street? In the 1970s, around the time Vieux Carre opened on Broadway, that was a laundromat. In New Orleans, laundry day usually involves the long, slow cooking of a pot of red beans and rice on the stove while you're busy doing the week's wash. And Tennessee did his laundry here in the 70s and 80s, even though by this time he was probably worth well over $10 million. Locals recalled seeing him alone, folding his socks. Facing the former laundromat, turn right and cross Burgundy Street and continue walking straight. You're headed toward the brick building with the red shutters. Keep walking with that brick building on your right. Look for the yellow house up ahead on the left side of the street. Stop when you're across the street from it. Stop here in front of this yellow house across the street, the one with the iron balcony and green shutters. This is where Tennessee resided during his final years in New Orleans. He purchased the house in 1962, and he loved the swimming pool in its courtyard. He swam every day, even in the winter. Sometimes he walked from the house to the pool in a fur coat to keep warm. 
Tennessee loved the French Quarter, and it kept drawing him back for almost half a century. Tennessee said he wrote most of his best work in New Orleans, and he always believed the city was the perfect setting for his haunted characters. He painted New Orleans as a great city gone to seed, a city that bucked the genteel Southern traditions. He believed that the further south you went in the United States, the more congenial life was. But he also felt New Orleans and the French Quarter restored him and gave him his best material, as well as his best life. After living in this house off and on for several years, he grew weary of maintaining the property. So he sold it to new owners with the stipulation that he could continue to live here for $100 a month until his death. Tennessee said, I hope to die in my sleep when the time comes, and I hope it will be in the beautiful big brass bed in my New Orleans apartment. But sadly, on February 25th, 1983, just two months after he struck the deal for the sale of his house. Tennessee passed away at the Hotel Elysee in New York City. He was 71. In his memoirs, Tennessee wrote that he wanted to be buried at sea, near the same spot in the Caribbean where poet Hart Crane jumped to his death from a ship. But Tennessee's brother chose to bury him in the family plot in St. Louis beside his mother. When his sister Rose passed away in 1996, she was laid to rest next to him. Despite the circumstances of his death and burial, I certainly hope Tennessee found peace. Here in New Orleans, we mourned him with that memorial service I told you about in St. Louis Cathedral. Tennessee's cousin, the Reverend Sidney Lanier, officiated. Lillian Boutte, a performer from the Treme, sang Abide With Me, which was Tennessee Williams' favorite hymn. And the church bells rang as the service let out, the same bells that Blanche Dubois called the only clean thing in the quarter. Tennessee loved this city for most of his life as a writer and a southerner and a gay man. And in turn, the city will always love him back. So I hope you feel his spirit with you today the same way I do. Thank you for walking with me through Tennessee's last frontier of Bohemia. <laughs>